0: You're listening to The Grindstone, a philosophy podcast from Purdue University. What's up, everybody? Welcome to the Grindstone Podcast. I am your host, Matthew Kroll. I have the giggles because my (laughs) guest today is making me laugh. I'll get to that in a minute. But again, this is the Grindstone Podcast, the official podcast of the Department of Philosophy at Purdue University. And joining us today is actually a graduate of Purdue University. He was in the philosophy and communication program, if I recall correctly, Mm -hmm. through the communication department. We have assistant professor Andrew Iliadis, who is professor of media studies at the Lou Klein School of Media and Communication at Temple University. Is that correct? That's absolutely. Correct. I got you that did a great right. That I got awesome. that right. This is the forty seventh take of this of this intro. So <laughs> you thank you like, to Andrew for bearing with me as I butchered the name of his position. No, you did a good job. No, that was <laughs> perfect. That was perfect. <laughs> no, Andrew, good to see you, man. Thanks good for joining you us. How's Thanks everything for inviting going? me. Yeah, yeah.
1: Really well, really well, actually. Um, the flight was kind of bumpy, but uh, you know Ooh. it was pretty good.
0: That time of year, though. That time of year, and winter came early here. So you are in Philadelphia, Philadelphia right now. Yeah. Temple, uh, what's that like? I've Never been to Philadelphia actually. Is it
1: Philly's a really cool city? So I'm Canadian. I'm from Toronto, oh, and right. so uh, when my Canadian friends ask me what's Philadelphia like, I often say it's kind of like. New York City, maybe 20 years ago, like 20 years. So before <laughs> kind of, you know, ch- started changing like yeah, Times yeah. Square and all that. So yeah, yeah, there's still a real, you know, like funk to the city. It's still, nice. you know, there's still a lot of nice. character there. Some kind of
0: earthy and yeah. sort of like, yeah, yeah. Nice. Yeah. That's awesome. That's yeah. awesome. So um, you did your PhD here at Purdue and it was in the philosophy and communication program, mm-hmm. an interdisciplinary program. Um, Full disclosure, I was in the philosophy and literature program, so we sort of crossed paths through that process or whatever is our time here as graduate students coincided. Mm -hmm. But I wanted to start just kind of get a sense of, you know, who Andrew Iliadis the academic, is and how you sort of got to studying what you study and sort of what sparked your interest was there like a particular book or a moment whether school related or just in your life was there sort of a moment where you thought oh that's really what i want to study or how did that sort of come together for you
1: um i guess it depends like how far back um you want to go but um okay
0: yeah I w- <laughs> take us to the the I, zygotes or whatever they're called
1: i, I, I would yeah. say so like but let's say let's say before uh like reading philosophy proper um, yeah, yeah. i was really interested in uh, there's a french author i think his name's is uh Andres André Barbouss, or Barboussé, and he has a book called Hell, and uh, when I was in high school, yeah, I really, you know, the title really got my attention, (laughs) and uh, I was really intrigued, you know, I used to work in a library in Toronto, and um, so I saw this book called Hell, which kind of, you know, being a sort of teenage goth in, you know, high school, (laughs) kind of piqued my interest, Um, and uh, it was was sort of like a sartre, the way he wrote um, the novels about this... Uh, character uh, who basically stays in this hotel and uh, has a peephole in his room that can see into the other room. Okay. And uh, he becomes obsessed and stays in that room uh, just to see all the different characters and all the different people who come and go outside nice. of that room. And, and you know, there are all these different characters that come and go. There's like a, a, a one, one patron is read his last rites by a priest in the room and the guy's observing this and then, you know, a family comes with their children. And, um, you know, it was a really philosophical book. Um, there were some passages were fairly didactic and, you know, the writing wasn't amazing. Um, You could tell that there was a bit of philosophy trying to come through as literature, I guess. Okay.
0: okay. Um,
1: But yeah, that that book really sort of made me think, I guess, about... um Points of view, perspective, parallax, things like that. And nice. From there it was just, you know, Sartre and then the usual like existential literature and things like that.
0: And then through your undergrad and like your early grad years, is that what did you study philosophy or was it more on the communication media studies side? Uh,
1: so undergrad was English and cultural studies, actually. Oh, nice. Um and but the where the philosophy crept in was probably through cultural studies. Um, I had a really, really awesome, awesome uh, professor named Juja Baroche at Trent University, who was this real really intense Hungarian academic who was like a Derridian scholar and, uh, you know, she knew Derrida and read Deleuze and, you know, she would just lecture and, uh, you know, no slides, no, you know, just kind of stand there and like, you know, shout philosophy at us and I was just really, you know, I, I I love that style of pedagogy where someone's just a, you know, brilliant orator is kind of, you know, they've got the knowledge and they're just kind of giving it to you and rocking uh, the mic, rocking the mic, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and 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 so she, we read a lot of, I guess Deleuze, Derrida. Um, in in her classes we were we were studying cinema, so we would watch like, you know. Bellatar like some four hour Hungarian movie and then do like a Deleuzean reading of it. And so I mean I don't that's nowhere close to what I'm doing now, but um, that was got that, you on your way, that got me on my way, yeah. I think the the first class she uh, she held, I think she played yeah, she played like a four hour Theo Angelopoulos film and uh, half the class left and she was like, This is how I sort, you know, who who are the serious students and who are the <laughs> Who you know? Who's she? So she gets them. She gets them to leave after yeah, the first a class. Weed out class. Weed out class. Yeah, That's
0: awesome. yeah.
1: That's awesome. um, so you said you were at Trent. Yeah. Um, uh, but where? Where is Trent? Uh, Trent's. Uh, it's about uh, I think two hours outside of Toronto in Peterborough, Ontario. It's it's a real hippie town. Um, yeah, the 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 sort of. Um, caricature that uh, people say about Trent is like I- environmentalists go there you know if you do like uh, natural you know sciences or um, cultural studies that kind of stuff um, it's a beautiful campus there's a it's on the uh, there's a river there and um, beautiful uh, you know trees and forests and it was it was awesome I've, I've talked with my ex-classmates uh, about we didn't know how good we had it while we were there um, but it's a beautiful place.
0: Nice sounds like sort of idyllic and off by itself? Are you from the Toronto area? Uh, it...
1: Yeah, yeah. I grew up in Scarborough, which is kind of like it's uh, borough of Toronto, um, now part of Toronto. you going
0: to, to Scarborough? Scar- <laughs> <laughs> I think yeah. I nailed that. Yeah, yeah. That um, was perfect. No, that's awesome. But that's that sounds perfect. really cool. Um, I still... When I did my master's work at the University of Essex, which is about like an hour and a half, sort of um, south southeast of London. Um, anyway, in this little town called Colchester, the geography might be wrong there, but it was like set on this little lake Well, they were like kind of glorified ponds, but it was two little lakes or whatever, basically in this parkland between this industrial town of Colchester and this little village of Wivenhoe. Um, and I found that like a really great environment basically to study. I mean, I was studying continental philosophy at the time and creative writing and it was just, uh, I mean, it sounds like you had a, a similar experience at Trent. There's something like with the campus and if it's sort of that idyllic, somewhat like not necessarily rural, but sort of totally. parklands kind of environment that it's just, it's, it sounds corny, but it really is good for your mind. Oh, it just helps sure. you think. Absolutely. Like, yeah. We yeah. we
1: spent so many hours sitting on the, there were some steps that went out of the library straight into the river <laughs> So we would sit on these steps and just like read in the summertime That's and, dope. you know, the, ro- the rowing team would go by. And, yeah, it was really, really awesome. That's uh, awesome. Really, really funny short thing. Yeah. Uh, when us, I went please. for my student orientation, my, my family's from Greece and uh, my, gr- my, my uh, grandfather came with us. And as I was doing my ori- walking orientation, he started fishing in the river. <laughs> and there was a big sign that said, do not fish in the river.
0: <laughs> ah. I mean, the river's there to be fished. Like, yeah, yeah it's goats, like, goats, came out saying, like what are you doing? Stop yeah, fishing in the river. Yeah, You're not yeah. supposed they're going to gonna do that. kick out. Yeah, they're going to expel me already. Yeah. No, that's awesome. <laughs> so then um, after that, I mean, you know, I'm sure many things happen, but you sort of find yourself in the philosophy and communication program. Um, Maybe tell us a little bit about the dissertation and sort of how you kind of came to find yourself in the space of media studies.
1: Well, I did a mass, I did a, I did a two-year master's in Toronto in uh, communication and culture. And, And that kind of furthered the, you know, theory, cultural studies side of things. We read a lot of like, I think, like, Eugene Thacker and, like, you know, Bernard Stiegler and things like that. And uh, I'm, not, I'm not familiar with, with those, uh, Thacker, those. Thacker guys. has a book called Biomedia with MIT. And so he talks nice. about, like, like bioinformaticists and the technologies they use to, you know, identify DNA and things like that. Nice. And so. Um, Uh, One of my advisors at uh, my master's program told me about the communication philosophy or philosophy communication, whichever you prefer, uh, program here at Purdue. Um, And because I hadn't heard about it. And so through him, I think he knew a faculty member in communication here um, and basically said, hey, I've got, you know, I've got this student in Toronto who does kind of like interdisciplinary, you know, communication work. Can you apply to the program? And that's really how I uh, how I applied. Um, I think previous to me and, and our colleague Jessica Sturgis, who also came through the program, that's right, that's right. I, th- I think I heard that that uh, before us, it had been for it had been a, like a year or two before anyone else had applied to the program. Mm. I don't know if I, I don't know if I'm right on that, but I think someone had told me that you know, it's not, they don't get a lot of applications for it. And it's only, you know, they'll, they kind of just, you know, there'll be someone every couple of years and, and you know, they might let them in.
0: But. Yeah, it strikes me as a, as a small program and one that doesn't necessarily have, you know, a robust <laughs> cohort on a year to year basis. Yeah. But I imagine in a way though, that's nice because not only do you sort of immediately find yourself in a small, hopefully close knit community, but there's a bit of a niche there, you know, like, I mean, or maybe maybe I'm wrong, maybe it feels like you're sort of out in the wilderness a little bit, but how did you find that being a part of such a small interdisciplinary program? Yeah, yeah, well, yeah, you had asked about the dissertation and the program, um, I, it was it was it was
1: good for someone like me who's really self-directed and and really not looking for someone to kind of hold my hand and be like a mentor I'm really I kind of like you just want to get I, I just kind of wanted to like do my thing and be left alone so in that yeah. sense it was really good um, nice. but I would imagine I would imagine if someone needed more guidance you know as most I think PhDs do or like you know what's the market like how do I how do I brand myself how do I get out there how do I especially in philosophy yeah, yeah which yeah. is you know the market's kind of hard right now Um i think I think it might be hard given all that space because you're not you know you 're not in a single department, so you you do kind of feel a little bit like
0: an outsider, but for someone like me, it was actually quite you know liberating. I liked being um, left alone <laughs> nice I mean I sort of felt the same about philosophy and literature was i mean at least in terms of like the inner intellectual pursuit, I felt like I really was able to just pick a dissertation mm-hmm. and go after it. you know what I right. mean like there was no um and, and, you know, for better or for worse, nobody was really saying, oh, that might not be like the space. I mean, the faculty were so encouraging. of just like, that's what you like. Go do it. You know? Yeah. Like if
1: you're like traditionally, if you're in calm, you need to specialize in one of the streams. So you do political communication, health communication, oh, okay. organizational communication. Okay. I didn't have to satisfy, I didn't have to fit into any of those boxes because they were like, he's, you know, the weird philosophy communication yeah, yeah. guy. So let him go do his thing, interdisciplinary that, thing.
0: That's awesome. And so what was the result of that, what was the dissertation? Then yeah, ultimately-
1: so or, originally, um, I, don't, I have to be careful, I don't, I don't want to go too far down a rabbit hole here, but um, or, originally I started <laughs> writing about um, this French philosopher, Gilbert Simondon, who really piqued my interest, um, because he, he had done a lot of early work in philosophy of technology and information, which I was becoming more and more interested in. Um, About when was he writing? Like, when was was he active? Yeah, so so his two main books came out in 1958. And he he died in 1989, I believe. Um, And uh, his story is a fascinating one because it's taken quite a while for everyone to catch up to his work. Um, It's kind of being rediscovered.
0: Hmm.
1: um, And I was part of a small group of people who were trying to translate and get his stuff out. And I think I even wrote like a um, Edinburgh university press book proposal where I tried to get some of his work translated and that kind of fell through. And there's a whole really wild publishing history with him where projects have started and
0: failed and started and failed. And, Hmm. um, but, um, yeah so his in terms work, of his work or like the literature like the scholarly work on him
1: no uh, no no his his actual uh, two texts and they were actually his minor dissertation and his major dissertation in right the on. French system yeah, yeah so the smaller one was called on the mode of existence of Tec- Tec- technical objects and the larger one was called individuation in the light of the notions of form and information and it's this massive, nice. massive text, and really, to, to my mind, was one of the first works in what you could call philosophy of, of information. Um, and and he, he he writes beautifully. He's you can't really categorize him as a continental or an analytic. He's 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 very clear, but he has some of the concerns that continental philosophers might have. Um, and so, um, his work got popularized through Deleuze, and that's how I encountered his work, Deleuze. Uh, quotes Simon Don in a lot of his texts, um, and uh, and so I became interested in Simon Don's work on philosophy of technology and information. Um, and originally, I was going to do my dissertation on Simon Don and do do you know a big kind of expose of his work, and because no one had done it yet. Um, but uh, it was um, I think after my prelims or the or the prospectus for the dissertation, my my communication prof sat me down and basically said, "Listen, bud." uh, you know, we love the philosophy you're doing, but, uh, if you really want a job and if you really want to get hired, maybe, and they knew, they knew that I was going to apply to schools that might not be philosophy departments. Like they might be communications or media. Um, they basically sat me down and said, you might not get a job in a communication department. If you write a book about one single, you know, dead French philosopher. And and I took that really seriously because I'm you know, I didn't want to move after school, you know, back to Toronto and not have a plan and not have a job. So I, I kind of just sat down and said, and said, um, you know, how can I, how can I take these interests in philosophy of information that I learned from Simon Don, and how can I apply that? And and then thankfully, discovered that uh, computer and information scientists talk a lot about uh, information and ontology, and they actually use a lot of the same uh, language and theories that philosophers use when they talk about philosophy of information and ontology. Uh, And then that kind of just, you know, once, once I found out that there were actual engineers and computer scientists, who had concerns about ontological categor- categorization and taxonomies and things like that, I mm-hmm. just ran with it. And I was like, wow, what's this world? And why, you, why don't more philosophers know about, about these computer scientists? And, you know, why aren't the computer scientists working with more philosophers to build these ontologies?
0: Yeah, yeah. So that's awesome. So um, I assume that that's kind of the space then you're working in now. Um, what is, so what are you working on now? I mean, what's the current project? What are you sort of interested in? Yeah, so the, the the dissertation
1: was was kind of, I, you know, if I, if I really, if, you know, gun to my head, I would say it's kind of like an STS, science and technology studies dissertation. Okay. Because, um, you know, some people are like, are you communication? Are you philosophy? Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, STS, I guess. And I'm, yeah. I'm applying for an NSF STS grant right now. So, you know, if, 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 if your grants dictate what what it is you're doing, then I'm applying for an STS grant. So that's what I'm doing right now. Right, um, right.
0: uh, And those seem to be, those programs are out there, STS. I was listening to another podcast the other day, and this woman said that, she graduated from like an STS mm-hmm. program, an interdisciplinary like it for her bachelors or whatever. So those seem to be...
1: They're out there and we're, we're actually trying to get one off the ground at Temple. Oh, uh, nice. Yeah, I've been going to meetings. So we've got an awesome interdisciplinary group, people from like in the, you know, bio department, engineers, mathematicians, philosophy, and actually the director is a philosopher from Temple. Nice. Mir- I forget her name, Miriam. I forget her last name. Um, but uh, we're, we're, all, we're all getting together and trying to make an STS certificate program at Temple. Um, nice. So yeah. how's
0: that going? How's that like um, interdisciplinary collaboration towards like a co-curricular <laughs> sort of outcome? Is that, I mean, just from your experience, because you're relatively, you know, early in your career. Yeah, I got hired some, last year. So you just got hired last year. Yeah. So, okay. So you started like fall of 2017 or whatever. Yeah. So you're, so what's that been like? I mean, that seems like I, I we yeah. all want to work
1: together, right? Like nice. pe- people are out there and want to work together. Um, it's the, the, the problem comes when you try to get, money and funding from sources because everyone sort of wants you to fit into these neat little boxes. And, um, and, and, you know, provosts and deans and, you know, people will, will say, okay, go ahead and do it, do these things you want to do. Just don't ask us for money. And so, (laughs) uh, you know, that's kind of what we're doing now is trying to, you know, strategize and see where, you know, we're, we're getting funding from all these different places, these different pools, but, like, how can we get sustained funding over a long period of time? That's something we're grappling with right now. Yeah,
0: how to streamline it. But that's awesome that at least the people are willing, like, and very interested in collaborating and working with one another. Mm -hmm. So good luck with that. Um, But I imagine, yeah, getting the uh, financial support and kind of finding which boxes you need to tick on these Grant applications and also to fit into the larger curriculum of the university, I'm sure is like right. another challenge. Like, what are these? What is this degree going to be? How are these credits going to count, and mm-hmm. all that kind of stuff. Right. Best of luck with that. Thank you. Um, in your, you know, your own work though, like, where's the research and discovery yeah, so, headed right now?
1: Yeah, I guess going back to the DIS, which I still haven't answered that question. But uh, <laughs> um, um, the, the DIS was an STS DIS that that looked at um, a specific um, ontology, so not. Not a philosophical ontology, a computational ontology. Uh, this this product called the Basic Formal Ontology, which was developed by a group Ooh. of engineers and philosophers. Um, you know, over the past uh, fifteen to twenty years. Um, and it's widely used in bioinformatics databases. And so um, hmm. you know, I don't, the Human Genome Project and sure. t- tons of projects around the world um, that deal with rich biodata use the basic formal ontology to annotate the metadata uh, so that different groups, different heterogeneous groups of researchers can say, here's my data set that I may have labeled using our wacky. Our, you know our own idiosyncratic labeling scheme, but we've annotated it using this sort of standard vocabulary that's been created. and that's a that's that's a fascinating thing to do uh, if you think about the types and of a lot of work exchange and interoperability between the data sets once you're able to say like here's what these data you know mean here's what these ones mean yeah, and yeah. so the the disc was kind of just a, a a historical but I also interviewed I interviewed a, a bunch of engineers and um t- you know took their took their stories so it was part ethnography part history and part philosophy because I I was interested in asking them questions about you know how do you make these decisions like ontological decisions about how you part you know portion out and carve nature at its joints like how how do you start from thing and then get down to process and event and and they were you know they've got these beautiful trees where they kind of break it all down and so I would ask them like how and and some of them you know surprised me they were referencing like not only Husserl but um hmm. uh, his name escapes me uh, another uh Ingarden, I think Roman Ingarden is a, a Polish philosopher. Okay, um, but yeah, just they were quoting areas of philosophy that I hadn't even heard about, and so um, these engineers were in computer science. Some, the enge- some yeah. of the engineers were, yeah, yeah, and there, there are there are there are a lot of um, computer science journals that are that deal with philosophical issues there's a journal called applied ontology and it's all about building meta you know metadata schemas Um, there's a semantic web journal where they talk about these things Um, so like information scientists have been have been you know talking about ontology and metaphysics but they've just been doing it in their journals and and you know for the most part philosophers have been doing them in theirs.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. So listeners may know that they've probably heard me say, but so half of my appointment in my postdoc is in the research data libraries. Mm-hmm. And so we have people that look at, you know, over the years, some of the grad students I was able to work with when I was a grad student working in the research data libraries. Yeah, they look at these same things like, yeah. I'm curious in your in the semantic your... web ontologies, you know, linked data. Um, yeah, I mean, my Knowledge is very limited, but one of the things I did work on a project for the um, the seminars of G. Deleuze, where we're um, now archiving his his seminars uh, the that's recordings awesome. or whatever and so I added some metadata but it was um descriptive metadata or whatever so that's interesting to hear that that's that that's something that struck you along the way and maybe something that you didn't realize when you sort of started this journey you know at Trent or whatever that you would kind of move in this direction No
1: I had no idea I think yeah, I, yeah. I think my master my first masters application I wanted to I think I've said I'm going to talk about the films of Michael Haneke and do a Deleuzean reading of Mike, Michael Haneke's <laughs> most violent films or something like that. So far
0: away from metadata library
1: metadata and things like that.
0: Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's interesting. So I, I want to ask like so do you do a, do you interact a lot with librarians and information scientists whether just like in your own research or you know at Temple is there is um is that a collaboration that either happens for you personally or with a, within the department Yeah. or even just in the field generally because yes. it sounds like information scientists are oh for sure yeah embedded I've been,
1: in this yeah yeah I've been um, so like I've been trying to build out my project which you know I've got articles coming out and I've got a book project on this but um, I've, I've tried to look at these ontologies that um, the scientists have been using in open data repositories and you know bioinformatics and then kind of look at well you know what are the other technologies that are being built that also try to parse you know parcel out reality um, and and I, f- I found that you know these types of practices are happening in social media companies as well. Mm-hmm. They they build knowledge graph. They call them knowledge graphs. Uh, Google Google <laughs> okay. Google has a knowledge graph. Um, so when you you know when now you I've s-
0: heard it's act- it looks exactly like my brain. Is, yeah, that, yeah. is that true? Yeah, I no. think it might be true. No, I, that's true. No, it is the antithesis of my brain, and <laughs> listeners will no doubt know that. Um, but so, yeah. okay. So Google has a knowledge graph. They've got a knowledge graph, <laughs> and
1: uh, it like really briefly, um, if you search for you know, if you let's say you search for uh, Matthew Kroll online, um, and you know, don't yeah yeah you don't know what you'll find Uh, but you know when you search sometimes (laughs) and on the on the right hand side you'll see um you know maybe like a a birthday or like the film someone has been in or you know those bits of data yeah yeah well the uh, you know how does google know to pull those bits of data from different websites and the way that they do that is through metadata that's built into uh the code on websites Mm -hmm. which is the knowledge graph Um, So in the metadata, if you actually look, (laughs) it'll say birth, you know, this, this piece of information on this website means birthday, this piece of information on this website means, you know, where someone was born. And that's it's not it's not uh, observable on the web page it's in the machine readable metadata that's built into it
0: so is that like in an XML or somewhere like behind exactly the, yeah, yeah exactly yeah, yeah. RD, uh, RDF yeah,
1: and, yeah. yeah yeah yeah
0: nice RDF is just for, in case people uh, resource to make... description framework yeah, yeah yeah
1: and so I've I've been interviewing um, uh, I've been interviewing X members of uh, I don't know if, uh, if if you've heard of or maybe your listeners the w3c which is the World wide web consortium started by Tim Berners-Lee, the inventor of the internet, um, so he, he started the W3C in the 90s, and one of their long-term projects has been to create a semantic web, and, and out of the W3C have come tools like RDF, and um, I've been interviewing ex-members of W3C, asking them about what was your time like there trying to build these RDF triples. And you know, and, and a lot of them are disillusioned with the project and have moved on to other things. And hmm. um, so a lot of what I'm doing now is trying to interview uh, folks who've been building um, these types of frameworks and then also social media companies like google and facebook and things
0: like that when you say like interviewing ex members of the w3c it makes it sound like they were like a paramilitary group and like right, and right. they became like disillusioned <laughs> with right, the cause right. but um although i imagine with that kind of actually is part of what happens in the broader technological and social media world um is that people sort of start down a particular trajectory or a particular path and there's like disagreements about how to go about it or the funding's not there and people get disillusioned they back up they totally. find something else so totally um, not that the w3c was a paramilitary group no, no, very no, no, clear, but not clear no but it's, when you were talking about that it was like I'm interviewing ex members yes yeah. yes yes um, well, you know
1: it wasn't a total a totally friendly breakup with a lot of these people um, there there's literature out um, in some of these semantic web journals where you know some of these ex members in in the titles of their papers, say this is not going to work. Like this is wrong, you know. And, hmm. and they really critique the project. Um, and so that stuff is out there. And and there's definitely you know some you know the uh, I don't not animosity, but um, you know everyone thinks they have a better way of of you know creating an ontology. So uh, yeah, yeah, you go, yeah. It, it, the lingo that they use is uh, the neats and the scruffies. So you've got you know you've got you've, you've got this one group of of logicians and computer scientists who are kind of ad hoc like let's just keep adding things. Then you've got these other, this other group that's like we need a highly formalized standard way to do this where we can't just be changing things willy-nilly. And yeah, that, yeah. A that, that's syntax, a really, that's a really cheap way of, of framing it but more or less that's where some of the friction comes between these two
0: groups. You ever read S.E. Hinton's The Outsiders? Uh, I don't think I or maybe in high school? I okay, don't know. Yeah, because yeah. you said the scruffies and the Neats is oh, that what it is? So it reminds yeah. me of the Greasers and the socias. So right, like The Greasers yeah. were like the rumbling kids with like the switchblades from the other side of the tracks That's with like right, the grease yeah. in Tim their hair and like Tim the Berner's muscle car with the leather jacket yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then the Sochas were like the kind of preps or whatever and you know like they were like the conflicting groups um, but it's interesting that there's a similar sort of like uh, Kind of like cultural bifurcation. Totally. of Like, there's the people that are sort of just like, let's just work in this space and add on and make it happen, and then there's the group that's like, no, we need a formalized syntactic, mm-hmm. you know, approach to the formalized syntax so that everything has its place and everything sort of works, and that maybe there's some, I'm sure some collaboration, but also some conflicts like between those two groups. I wanted to go back to something you had mentioned. So I hear this a lot, like working in the libraries, and I've never really stopped anyone to say, could you please explain that to me? I just sort of nod. My ahead and go, oh yeah, no, that sounds like it makes total sense. Right. So what exactly is the semantic web? I feel like that's something that's yeah, that um, uh, you hear about it a yeah. lot, or like at least if you're you know, in a particular so, milieu.
1: So I have a slide. Actually, I'm writing a paper right now that tries to talk about the different levels of the semantic web and what people mean when they talk about it. Um, the semantic web, capital S, capital W, is a project that was started by Tim Berners-Lee and the W3C Um, It has since come to represent the next iteration of the web without the capital letters meaning the entire internet, all the apps, all the platforms that we use are building semantic layers into the code when you build these apps and platforms. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so I don't know if, if you're familiar with like Web 1.0, Web 2.0, yeah, yeah. Web 3.0. I mean, you know, 2, 2.0 was, so, was social media, uh, the interactive web. Yeah, yeah. And, and 3.0 more or less is supposed to be the intelligent web, the web where we can say, I want to see a movie and book a you know book a flight to Paris and it just automatically happens when we speak into our phone. That's that's mm. sort of the semantic web, not in the in the strict you know Tim Berners Lee's groups that have been building um, you know RDF and things like that. Yeah. But there are you know
0: that's the outcome of it. Yeah, like, that's, like, that's not the back end, but that's sort of the front end applicability and user friendly side. Right, like, right, yeah. So so strategies you, to help you. Yeah, yeah. So like Siri,
1: Siri is engaged in the semantic web. Facebook, Facebook is engaged in the semantic web. Okay, okay. And so you know the semantic web. In, in when I use that term is what's happening right now, like the next stage of the internet. But when you say it to people who know the history, sometimes they'll interpret you as saying, oh, you're just talking about that project that Tim Berners-Lee started in yeah, you know, 1990, 1995, where I use it kind of broadly. and And I've got actually in the talk later today, I've got one slide that kind of breaks down the semantic web into different levels. So nice. there's like code and syntax. There's these like m- mid-level MISO groups. And then there's like the, the, the larger groups, schema.org, Facebook that have their own yeah, yeah. sort of approach to building out the semantic web. Um, yeah. <laughs> that's, that's and, really interesting. And, and to go back to your, uh, to, you know, your work that you had been doing in the library, uh, you know, uh, archiving the Deleuze projects um you know there's there's a there's a metadata framework called Dublin Core yeah yeah uh, yeah so yeah. you know and you know what that is yeah, so yeah yeah that's you know metadata things like author date yep. year and you know really standard stuff when you're categorizing um, objects into an archive but uh the, you know there are there are hundreds of mid-level metadata uh, schemes like D- Dublin Core, Yeah, yeah. there's Friend of a Friend, which was for representing social relationships. Okay. There was another okay. mid-level metadata uh, ontology or scheme or yeah, yeah. Y- These words are somewhat interchangeable, but um, there's one called Good Relations, which was um, a metadata ontology for finance on the internet. Ah. Yeah, and so uh, what you have happening now is there's a really large project called schema.org, uh, which is being developed a uh, partnership, first of its kind, between Google, Microsoft, Yahoo, and Yandex, the Russian search engine. And they've all teamed up to build... to build uh, a standard metadata ontology for the semantic web that incorporates all these different ones, so Dublin Core, Good Relations, and so they're trying to kind of make the you know the mother load of all you know all metadata ontologies to annotate web metadata.
0: Yeah, so for PER, the Purdue University Research Repository where I work, we have um, like the way our metadata is formulated; it includes Dublin Core, MODS, and METS, like preservation metadata or whatever is all you know. It's all um, part of the metadata schema that is produced when we generate um, our AIPs, our archival information packages, which are, you know, the archival units that ultimately get, um, yeah, that get archived. Mm-hmm. Effectively, they get digitally preserved. So I'm familiar, like, you know, with uh, with some of those things. Um, so I didn't realize, though, that schema.org uh, is, the, yeah, so that's like the (laughs) major players that just coming together to figure out how to, um, I guess, create some sort of communicative uh, interoperability Mm -hmm. between there.
1: Absolutely, yeah. I saw a stat recently. I'm going to fudge the numbers, but um, I think a a few years ago, schema.org wasn't the most widely used metadata language. It was Dublin Core and, and a couple of others. Okay. But most recently, I saw a survey. It is far surpassed the other smaller uh, ontologies. And um, I think I saw stats, something like, uh, you know, a third of the world's web pages are already incorporating schema.org structure into the metadata. Um, So, you know, it's, it's growing. It's a it's a big project yeah. and it continues to grow.
0: And I should say PER has evolved um using like a schema.org or um interacting with schema.org as that obviously has grown. And mm-hmm. also so the way we like mint our DOIs through data Sure. Um I believe they use schema.org. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we're obviously trying to create better interoperabil interoperability between our AIPs and, you know, data site who mints um, right. yeah, our DOIs or whatever. So I don't want to, I don't want to make it sound like PERS in the dark ages. We're also evolving, but um, yeah, yeah, that's, I should also say though, that I am not the metadata specialist. Sure. So, if anybody's interested, you can go to purr.purdue.edu P-U-R-R. yes. um, and find out what the sophisticated we'll people, you. yeah, well, that he said that, okay. not me, no, um, what the sophisticated people in the libraries are doing with our metadata, but at least I, when I hear those terms, I can say, oh, okay, like I'm broadly familiar with what these things are trying to accomplish, right. so just in the last couple minutes here, sure. um, I know you got to get going, You're, I should also say that Andrew was on campus today to do a talk, um, today, just to give you guys, a, listeners a sense, is Monday, November 19th. 2018. No, you'll be hearing this well after the fact. Um, but the talk that he is giving today is titled, now tell me if I got this right yep. Schema Graph Ontology Baking Semantics into
1: Data-driven,
0: Data-Driven Media, media technologies. technologies. Excellent. Good Yay! He got it right. Awesome. Um, no, thank you. Okay, baking <laughs> semantics into, media, into data-driven media technologies. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. And great to see you, and thanks for being here for the talk. I'm looking forward to it. But just so in the last couple minutes that mm-hmm. we have here, um, some of this stuff is kind of frightening to me. Um, you were talking about, you know, the way like Google can pull down like certain information to whatever, like recognize this is a location or this is a birth date or sure. whatever. And and that's one thing. But when you were talking about, you know, being able to use your smartphone to just sort of talk to and say, I want to book a flight and I want to go see this movie and things like that. But since you're much more embedded in this space and much more knowledgeable about it, I I mean, how do you sort of read the way this is evolving seemingly just so quickly, but there also just seems to be this almost like this sprawl, almost like some sort of cyberpunk novel, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like where there's all of this stuff happening and people are obviously trying to work together to create better efficiencies and collaborative efforts that will create this interoperability. But also there's just, it seems like a ton of money and venture capital coming into this. So as someone who studies this from an academic standpoint, point where do you sort of see this space going in the next five or ten years do you think that it's growing too quickly do you think that people because I think many people are a little scared of this or you know that don't understand it and I'm not don't mean that in a condescending or pejorative way I don't understand it it's a little frightening to me do you find this really thrilling exciting do you think the opportunity is there for you know better global collaboration. I mean, how do you think this sort of affects people on a day-to-day basis that just use the internet, use smartphones? I mean,
1: I I think it's like any technology. And I I, I think there are good, good parts to it and bad parts to it. The good parts are things like, of course we should make, you know, data about cancer research shareable, where we can all exchange it, learn from each other, make it more interoperable. That's the good side. Yeah. Um, you, know, you know, if I want to meet up with a group of friends and you use semantic technology and build a network that way, that's, that's the good stuff. Um, you know, the, the darker side, the darker questions, which I am interested in, and I'll talk a bit uh, today in the lecture about it are things like, um, you know, w- one case I look at is how the military is using semantic technologies to take local data that they've gathered from places and annotate it with semantics to create larger databases from locally, locally sourced data. Wow. And they do things like build in categories, like is a leader, is a terrorist, is a... Things like this. And so when you, when you, <laughs> okay. when you, when you look at the way those types of social ontological uh, categories might be embedded in semantic technologies. You know, then there are there are scarier questions you can ask, like what happens when your name is included in a database? What what happens if it was mis misapplied or you know it, it's inaccurate? You know, how do you get your yeah. name out of that kind of database? Yeah. What happens with guilt by association and correlations and things like this? So there are there are fascinating ethical questions for sure about the application of semantic technologies, and we should pay attention to them. And there, are, you know, there are even things that are maybe a little less serious. Like there might be a taco stand outside my apartment that Siri doesn't recognize because it doesn't have a, a website that has been annotated. So when I say, "I want," you know, "Is there any," you know, that kind of food around here? <laughs> yeah. They'll go, "No, there's none. You got to go, you know, three hundred whatever steps that way." And won't recognize that you know, there's things outside. The so literally, right outside. Your literally, door. right outside. And so, uh, you know. People will just start privileging that information because they have easier access to that information, and so you know, on the, on from that perspective, it's like what gets included? Why do we pay attention to these things that have been you know built into these semantic technologies, and who gets excluded? So yeah. that's another another part of it as well. Sure,
0: and then when, I mean that has a great effect on in terms of like socioeconomics, like say for instance, this food truck can't get going even though they have the best food in town just because maybe they don't have the um, the revenue to be able to build like the correct technologies to get themselves embedded in there, so it has effects on free markets, socioeconomics. Yeah, like, they, like and, and, food
1: truck. They don't have like a search engine optimization game going right, right. on or something <laughs> like that. You know, like, yeah, their SEO is kind of weak. SEO, yeah. yeah. yeah.
0: Um, no, but I mean that that does seem like obviously then it has greater ramifications beyond, and also in a way like what knowledge is privileged and what information is privileged and what legacies are built in terms of like whatever that was, Epistemic and that's, legacies that, that coined that, that. Yeah.
1: That's, that's actually like the third area that I didn't mention, which is um, like, I have friends who, who build semantic web products that are working with indigenous communities in Canada. And nice. they're, they're, they're trying to help the government, Uh, take local data from these indigenous communities and the the, the semantic uh, web experts that that I know have been trying to work with those communities to see how they should label and build the semantics into the government databases and not just, you know, slap whatever the Canadian government says on, you know, label the the data that way. Yeah, Yeah,
0: that's awesome. That's awesome. Andrew Iliadis, thank you so much for being our guest today. Real thank you quick, for having there, me. Yeah, thanks it's for being here. Anything it. you want to plug? I know you said you had a couple um, articles and books coming out. Anything you, like a journal maybe you want people to keep an uh, eye out for?
1: I, I, yeah, I'm not going to mention the stuff in press, but I guess I <laughs> guess uh, the, the most recent thing would be I have a paper called um, Algorithms, Ontology, and Social Progress in the journal Global Media and Communication. It's short and sweet and uh, talks about some of the things that we've discussed today, so you can check that out.
0: Awesome. Thank you so much. Again, our guest today is Andrew Iliadis, He is an assistant professor. Of media studies at the Lou Klein School
1: of Media and Communication, Communication. (laughs) (laughs) Lou Klein College. College Sorry, 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 Lou Klein College of Media (laughs) and Communication
0: (laughs) at Temple University. He is giving a talk today on campus, and that was awesome, Andrew. Thank you so much. That
1: was a pleasure. Thanks for having me.
0: Sure. The Grindstone is brought to you by the Department of Philosophy at Purdue University, and is supported by the College of Liberal Arts at Purdue. Our intro and outro music is by Al Turity. You can follow the Department of Philosophy at Purdue on Facebook at Philosophy at Purdue, on Twitter at Philo, all caps, P-H-I-L-O, underscore Purdue, and on Instagram at Philo, underscore Purdue.